Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on, normally it's email Friday, but during our last Fridays in the year 2020-22, I'm going to be doing something a little different. Uh, yesterday with Wes Reimnitz, we talked a little bit about Advent and the theme that I'm preaching on, and it's the theme of being rescued. So what I thought I would do on these remaining Fridays in December is kind of go over my Advent sermon that I'm doing on Wednesday nights to give you a little insight into what the church is all about. And and that's what it's really all about. It's about rescuing people. I saw a movie recently where a fisherman loves to fish and the lake he fished on got iced over. It was so cold. He decided to go fishing, but his friends told him that the weather was such that the ice wasn't as thick as he thought it might be. It was getting thinner and thinner. But he took his vehicle and drove out on the ice about to the middle of the lake, and sure enough, the ice broke from underneath him and this was a movie, of course, and both his vehicle and himself, he went under the ice and he drowned. That's the task of the church, is to rescue people from their being on thin ice. And what do we mean by the thin ice? The thin ice is their understanding that they can, by their works, stay above the water. That good works is what saves them. And the church warns you, no, good works are not able to save you. In fact, good works are of two kinds. The one kind is what human beings normally think of good works like feeding the poor, giving clothes to the needy, helping the homeless, visiting folks in prison, etc. But just because you do that good work doesn't mean that that is a good work in the eyes of God. That may be a good work in the eyes of human beings. But what is a good work in the eyes of God? In fact, it's referred to as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The, the reason that good works cannot save anyone is because you can't even do a good work in God's sight unless you have the gift of the Holy Spirit and you are motivated properly. One of the most important verses in the Bible is from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. It talks about that the plans of the heart of men are considered to be pure. In other words, they have no fear of God, and, and therefore whatever they're doing, even living immoral lifestyles, that's fine because that's up to them. That's their free will to do that. And nobody, including a Christian, can tell them that is wrong. But the Christian, and the verse goes on and says, 
that though most people think that the works that they are doing are pure, God evaluates the motivation. That's a tremendous verse. Proverbs 16, verse 2. That is really what God decides is a good work or not. So I decided to have a theme for Advent that I had never done before, and I wanted to do it on rescue. But what is rescue? How does that take place? I chose four events in the life of Jesus Christ. And each Wednesday, I'll be talking on them. And on Friday, I'll share with you the sermon I did. The first rescue is we are rescued by his incarnation. The second rescue, we're rescued by his crucifixion. The third rescue is by his resurrection. And the fourth rescue is by his ascension. Now, when you think of those four items, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, a lot of people just think of some historical event that's talked about in the Bible, and that is the meaning of each of these items. So let's start with incarnation. When did Jesus become incarnate? I would say that most Christians would give as their answer that he became incarnate at Christmas when he was born of the Virgin Mary. No, what we celebrate at birthday, at his birthday, is not his incarnation, but his being born. When did the incarnation take place? And there again, scripture interprets scripture. It took place when the angel Gabriel met with Mary and he used a future tense of the verb. You will conceive and bear a child and that child will be the son of God. Now, Mary says, but I do not know a man. How is this going to take place? It's very important that she's not denying that it's going to take place. She's just questioning how. And the angel says that she will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. We have that in our creed. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In other words, the incarnation of Jesus Christ occurred very, very soon after Gabriel had met with Mary. Because the Bible says, as soon as Gabriel left, Mary immediately went to the co her cousin Elizabeth to her home. And that was less than a day away. And when she got there, she already was pregnant. How do we know that? Well, we know that Elizabeth was pregnant six months with John the baptizer. 
But when Mary entered the room, what did John the baptizer do? He leaped in Elizabeth's womb for joy. Now, how could he do that? Well, because God can create faith, not only in a newborn baby, but also in what we refer to as a fetus. He was only six months old. But Elizabeth explained that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he leaped for joy when Jesus came into the room in the womb of Mary. Now, at that time, Jesus would only have been a speck in the womb of Mary, realizing that he also would take nine months to be born, as did John the baptizer. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, which John the baptizer's father had been told by Gabriel when he came to him, that from before his birth, John the baptizer would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's how Elizabeth explained the leaping in the womb by John the baptizer. The the question, though, or the point we want to make is the incarnation had already taken place. Now, what is meant by the incarnation? That is a Latin word that talks about becoming flesh. In other words, Jesus is divine, and he became a human being after Gabriel had spoken to Mary. She was not pregnant with Jesus when Gabriel first met with her, but within a few hours, the pregnancy had occurred, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's the incarnation. Jesus became a human being. Now, in John chapter 1, where we talk about rescued from thin ice, it says in verse 11 that Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Yeah, many Jews rejected him, not only as the Messiah, but also as being divine. It just surprises me that Jesus did things that show the glory of his divinity that only God could do. Uh, For example, he took the disciples on a boat ride, and it was a big storm. The boat was sinking. They had to wake Jesus up because he was asleep in the stern. And they said, don't you care that we are going to drown? But Jesus stood up and he calmed the wind and the wave. Now, you would think at that point, the disciples would say, this is God. Because nowhere in the Old Testament did anyone but God have power over wind and wave. Remember, he divided the Red Sea. He calmed the Jordan River so they could cross over it to go into Canaan. God and God alone has those powers. 
and yet the disciples did not recognize Jesus as God. In fact, the first time that the disciple referred to Jesus as God was after his resurrection, when John the, the, the apostle saw Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And of course, the writings of the New Testament make it very clear that Jesus, yes, he was a human being, he had become incarnate, but he was also divine. Therefore, the point we want to make about the incarnation, what is the theological item that one needs to keep in mind? It's not Christmas Day when Jesus was born. No, he had already become a human being nine months before that, when the angel Gabriel gave a promise to Mary that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit and what would be born of her would be the Son of God. So this is what the theological meaning of the incarnation is, that Jesus became a human being. But why did he have to become a human being? Why was it necessary? Because God had told Adam and Eve, human beings, in the day that they sin, death will be the result. Now that can refer to the death of the person who does the sin, apart from any repentance, and their death will be an eternal death. But God in his ultimate wisdom, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a decision was made before the foundation of the earth, that's found in Ephesians 1, that God would save people by Jesus becoming a human being because only by a human being can sins of human beings be forgiven. You see, God could have sent Gabriel or Michael in flesh them and had them die on the cross but they were not human beings. They were angels. And so even though they appeared to Abraham at a meal with the Son of God, none of them were incarnate at that point. They appeared to be regular human beings, but the incarnation had not yet taken place for the one, namely Jesus, until Gabriel met with Mary. So that's the important point of the incarnation. And one can go through and see how important that is from John chapter 1. Jesus had to become a human being in order that he might become a sinner and die for sin. Now, most people don't recognize that Jesus was a sinner. And that's because he never sinned. But he was declared to be a sinner by God the Father. And that occurred at his baptism by John the baptizer. Remember the big argument that Jesus had with John? John says, 
boy, I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, I need to undergo this baptism of repentance to fulfill all righteousness. He was declared to be sin by God the Father. That's also found in the book of Corinthians. And therefore, when he died on the cross, Jesus was the greatest sinner in the world from God's point of view, from God the Father's point of view, because he had my sin and your sin. He had the sins of the entire world, and not only the deeds that turn into sin, but also the thoughts and the words. There's no distinction. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you think that murder only occurs when you do violence against someone? No, murder occurs when you have a word against someone or when you have a thought that is sinful against a person you don't like. So we sin all the time, but through repentance, we are sorrowful for our sins. We have grief over what we are doing to Jesus. And guess what? Our sins are forgiven. We are not held responsible for our sin. Jesus himself is held responsible. And that's because he was incarnated. Now that message is throughout the Bible. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up again into glory. And Next time we talk about the theological meaning of the crucifixion, we'll explain that. But right now we're dealing with the theological meaning of the incarnation. The theological meaning is that Jesus became a sinner for us. And Luke 1, 36, 35 is the angel's explanation to Mary as to how she will become pregnant with the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In fact, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And the word begotten there doesn't mean that God the Father gave birth to Jesus. No, it means that he is of the same substance of the Father. That's part of our creed. Because Jesus is as divine as the Father is. In fact, if you look at Daniel 7, God the Father, referred to as the Ancient of Days, is on a throne and he's got a beard, he's dressed in white, 
This is the vision that Daniel sees. And he sends the Son of Man, namely Jesus, into the world to redeem the world. Now, what's fascinating, if you go to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and the first chapter, it's describing Jesus. And guess what? He is described exactly as God the Father was described in the book of Daniel. It it reminds us of when, was it not Philip who said to Jesus, you talk a lot about the Father, like our Father who art in heaven. When will we see the Father? When will you show us him? Jesus says, and this is John 14, verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, how can Jesus and the Father, how can you see Jesus and know the Father? Because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father in his divinity. We don't know that much about God the Father, and no human being has seen him face to face. Remember on Mount Sinai, Moses could only see the backside of God the Father. But listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, God the Father has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And, talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact representation of his divine nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what Hebrews is telling us. And it continues to talk about how important Jesus is being the exact representation of the Father. In fact, It is clear from Matthew 1 that Jesus continues to be divine after he is incarnated. Matthew 1, 22, 23. Now all this took place, that's with Mary, to fulfill what was written by the Lord through the prophet. And this is referring to Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew 1 explains what the word Emmanuel mean. It's really made up of three words, God with us. So you cannot deny that Jesus is God. It is clear 
because Isaiah 7:14 says, a virgin will be with child, bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So, Romans 1.3, it talks about concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That's what the incarnation is about, that he became flesh. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, that means when God was ready to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. God the Father sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, what was the task of Jesus in his incarnated state? Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's very important to understand. I used to put a on our sign outside our church at Christmas, and a lot of people would ask about it. I had, he was born in order to die. Now we know from Psalm 22, pierced in hands and feet, that he would die, even though the cross was not yet in existence. We know from Isaiah 53 that the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. How do we know at Jesus' birth that he was born to die? It's not said by Mary or Joseph. Uh, the shepherds, they worship Jesus, but don't talk about his death. But the wise men, when they come and worship Jesus, they leave three gifts. Gold for a king, frankincense as prayers, and myrrh. You know what myrrh is? Myrrh is an embalming fluid that's used to anoint the dead bodies of people before they are buried. Imagine Mary's surprise, but the wise men knew he was born to die. That's the theological meaning of the incarnation. Next week, the theological meaning of the crucifixion. Listen to God bless you. Each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your checkout to Law & Gospel and mail to Law & Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.
Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.